Sometimes the creativity of an author isn't seen in the story that they create. Uh, It's seen in how they reimagine somebody else's story. And for example, uh, take the reimagining of Frank Baum's The Wizard of Oz. You're familiar with Gregory Maguire's version of that in his novel Wicked. From his perspective, you know, the Wicked Witch of the West is just horribly misunderstood. Well, C.S. Lewis actually did the same thing in his book, Till We Have Faces. He retold this myth, this Greek myth about Psyche and Cupid. Now, you may not be familiar with the original. I wasn't familiar with it either, but it's a great book. I'd recommend it. Um, Really, the story is the complaint of Psyche's older sister, Oruel. And uh, she's angry because the gods took away her precious psyche from her. So she explains the nature of the book at the very beginning. She says, I will write in this book what no one who has happiness would dare to write. I will accuse the gods, especially the God who lives on the gray mountain, that as I will tell all he has done to me from the very beginning, as if I were making my complaint of him before a judge. But there is no judge between gods and men, and the God of the mountain will not answer me. Books written in first person, and it really is her complaint. The whole, or at least the first part of the book is that. And so at the end of the first part of the book, she, she ends it with these very bitter words. Let them answer my charge if they can. It may well be that instead of answering, they'll strike me mad or leprous or turn me into beast, bird, or tree. But will not all the world know? And the gods will know it knows that this is because they have no answer. So then the second part of the book comes into play. And Oral, in that second part of the book, she sees her life from a different perspective. Wasn't the generous perspective that she had given herself. She sees it in the eyes of others. And, and then through a vision, she's able to have her opportunity to bring her complaint to the gods. And so... In that vision, her complaint isn't this book that she's compiled. It doesn't turn out to be a book. It ends up being this kind of little shabby, crumpled roll of paper. And when she reads it, she comes to find out what her complaint really was. See, her true complaint exposes her own selfishness and lack of love. So just hearing the truth said by herself, reading those words, that was her answer. That she was wanting. She says, the complaint was the answer. To have heard myself making it was to be answered. Lightly men talk of saying what they mean. Then she pauses to remember her old teacher. She calls the fox. He would talk about the joy of being able to say what you mean. And then she says, when the time comes to you at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech, which has lain at the center of your soul for years which you have all that time, idiot-like, been saying over and over, you'll not talk about joy of words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly, nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? The truth is that we we have a different perspective on ourselves in reality. And we think we know what we're like. We have a very generous view of our lives. 
But we don't naturally see ourselves the way other people see us. And we certainly don't see ourselves from God's perspective. The truth is, we're not what we think we are. And Paul gives us God's perspective on humanity here in these verses. And the truth is, we're not the exception to what he says here. We may not be the whole picture, but we are a part of it. So when we imagine that we don't deserve God's wrath, that we don't deserve to be punished by God, all we're doing is merely producing a creative revision of our history. And it would just be, you know, artistic license, except for the fact that we're claiming it's historical fact about us. So Romans chapter, nine, chapter 3 and verses 9 through 20 helps us face the truth about ourselves. Paul's going to help us face that truth through three different sections. The first one, it's really concluding his responses that he's, it's, it's a response to what he's been saying up to this point in these first three chapters. And that's going to give us the truth about our circumstances. And then the second section is really a list of Old Testament quotes. And he gives those to substantiate that first truth. And he ends up, in doing that, he gives us the truth about our lives. And in the final sections, the last two verses, and it's, it's really the conclusion to what he's been saying, not just what he's been saying here, but throughout uh, the chapter beginning in chapter 1 and verse 18. He's giving us a conclusion. And through that conclusion, he gives us the truth about our future. And so let's face the truth about ourselves, the truth about our circumstances, lives, and future. And we're going to begin with the truth about our circumstances. So turn to Romans 3, if you haven't already. And again, it's on page 884. Look at Romans 3, 9. And if you use the Bible in the pew there, it's on page 884. And that's where we first see the, the truth about our circumstances. <clears throat> and really, this is what Paul's been driving at since he started this, this part of the letter in chapter 1 and verse 18. So here's what he says in Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now the first eight verses of this chapter, Paul's been really dealing with possible objections to what he's been saying. Uh, that's what we talked about a few weeks ago. These are objections that he's come across in the 20 plus years he's been preaching the gospel, especially in Jewish synagogues. And so he moves on really from there to, to talk now about a conclusion. And that's, he makes this, he signals this conclusion with the question, what then? And then he asks, are we Jews any better off? Now, the Greek text actually only says, are we any better off? And, and Paul leaves us to kind of figure out who that we is referring to. So in that same verse, verse 9, the second we is clearly referring to Paul. It's that literary we that we've come across before. So it could be he's talking more specifically about himself, but the section really has been, and, and really I would say even back to chapter 1 and verse 18, it's been a section directed to Jewish people. And, and really he's been targeting this, this situation that's occurred now that Christ has come. What is the situation for the Jewish person because that's going to be indicative of the situation for everyone. And so he then turns, and, and I think he's already included himself in the Jewish situation uh, back in earlier in verse 5, when he talks about our unrighteousness. 
And so I think this interpretive translation here of we Jews is correct. Paul's including himself in this, but he's still speaking to the Jewish audience. Now, there's a question about how the, to render the verb, but I think the ESV and many translations like it, they're giving us the best understanding of this question. The question, though, sounds a lot like the first question in this chapter. It's almost like he's asking again, well, what advantage has the Jew? But it is slightly different. There, he was really talking just more generally with what you're saying, Paul, is there any advantage? Well, here he's focused in on the situation when we're standing before God in the end. So what he's saying is, based on what I've been saying, are Jews better off on Judgment Day? And his answer is no, not at all. And even there, there's questions about exactly the translation of no, not at all. It's not exactly like may it never be. But you can tell that's what he's getting at because of what he follows, his explanation that follows. He goes on to to say that this has been his argument. What he's been arguing, he summarizes as a charge. This is a legal accusation of guilt. What he's been doing is he's been arguing that both Jews and Greeks are guilty before God, and even more specifically, they're both under sin. So this is really his explanation for Romans 1.18. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Paul's saying that goes for Gentiles as well as for Jewish people. Now, the reason he gives here is because they're both under sin. That's not the same thing as simply saying they're both sinners. This goes beyond that. There's something even more devastating about saying that we're all under sin. This is a phrase that personifies sin. It it acts as though sin is a person. What Paul's saying is that everyone is under the power and authority of sin. Now, if we look back to chapter 1, we understand what he's talking about. Paul in chapter 1 spoke of God handing people over to the sinful desires that they have and their sinful, their dishonorable passions and their debased minds. So the fact is, is that humanity didn't want to submit to God. They rejected him and they corrupted themselves in doing that. And so what God did, what Paul describes is he handed them over to that corrupt self. You know, their intelligence and desires, they were not used for what God intended them to be used for. And what Paul says is God handed humanity over to their incorrect use of their intellect and their desires. And so what Paul's saying here in chapter 3 is that his argument, it began with the Gentiles. Very clearly, it begins with the Gentiles. They're obviously under the power of their sinful intellect and, and desires because look at their immorality. Look at their idolatry. But what he was going on to, to show in chapter 2 is that this is true of the Jewish person too. Despite what they imagine about themselves, both Gentiles and Jewish people are under the power of their sinful state. Now, Paul has never described that situation as simply unfortunate for people who were born into it. Now, sometimes that's how we can think about it. After Adam's fall, we're just all unfortunately born into this. Paul, at every point, describes the situation as one where we are fully responsible for it. Every individual. Now, I'll admit, that, that's, that's a bit mysterious. I mean, when you look at it, on the face of it, it seems like we've been placed into this predicament. That it wasn't our choice. That we were born into it. And yet Paul, the way he describes it, it's not a logical consequence. 
He describes it as a deeply personal rebellion for every one of us. So I think the reality is, when you think about it, we are very complex creatures. You know, unlike anything else God created, any other living creature, out of all the other living creatures that God created, only we are created in his image. And that gives us a responsibility to carry out in this world. We are to image God. We're to live as reflections of his holy character. But that also makes us accountable to God for how well we do at that. So there are certainly a number of different factors involved in why people do exactly what they do in terms of using their sinful desires and sinful intellect. But we're still free agents. We're not puppets. Someone else isn't doing this for us. Even though we live within this this sinful realm where our own sinful intellect and desires are ruling us, Paul says we're still responsible. We're the ones who responsibly deserve God's wrath for how we live. He says that when we sin, no one made us do it. We freely chose to to sin. So the slavery to sin... What it is, is a slavery to what we want to do, to how we want to live. That's what the slavery is that Paul's talking about here. Now, the truth about our circumstances, well, let me go back. Anybody who would feign objection to this, and I say feign, saying that me being a slave to myself, that's just not fair. Here's my reply. Oh, come off it. You're not upset. Let's just, be, let's just be honest about the situation. If you really believed this wasn't fair, you'd submit to God. If your cogitation over this and consternation over this, this idea that you're a slave to your own sinful wants, if that didn't lead you to cry out to God for help, it's because you don't want anything else. You want it. You want the situation you're in. You say, well, the Bible says I can't. But you equally don't want to. So what does it matter? It's not a real problem for you. Here's here's the way out. Submit to God. And if you say, I can't, I would equally say, you don't want to. So Paul says that's a chargeable offense. Truth about our circumstances is that We are very willing to live under the power of our sin. Naturally, that's our state. It's not merely an unfortunate predicament. It's a desired predicament. And it's not just true for Gentiles. Paul has already demonstrated that this is true for the members of God's old covenant people. That's a harder pill to swallow, though, for the Jewish person. They did view themselves as different. So Paul goes on to support that truth with a list of quotations from the Old Testament. does that in verses 10 through 18. And what he's doing is he's proving the biblical basis for this truth about their circumstances. But he also, in doing so, he spells out the truth about our lives. Truth about how we live. Are we as good as we think we are? Uh, The TV show Friends had an episode where two of the characters, Joey and Phoebe, they get into an argument about whether a selfless good deed actually exists. 
So Joey, he's a character, as a character, he's a struggling actor, and he has this opportunity to co-host the, a PBS telethon, and he says he wants to do that to do a good deed. And he says it's just like what Phoebe had done in a previous season for her brother, just do a good deed for him. Well, Phoebe's not having it. She says, that's not what this is about. You just want to get on TV. This is totally selfish. And he says, well, your good deed was selfish too because it made you feel good. And then he says, sorry, there's, there's, there's no unselfish good deed. People, all people are selfish. This is a character on a TV show saying this. All people are selfish. Selfless good deeds don't exist. Well, that makes Phoebe want to prove him wrong for the rest of the episode. So she spends the rest of the time trying to do that. So she, she helps her elderly neighbor rake up his leaves, but he catches her. And as she puts it, he force-fed her cider and cookies and made her feel really good about it. She tries something else. She goes down to the park, and she let a bee sting her. When she explains to Joey, he's trying to figure out, why is that a good deed? She says, well, it helps the bee look tough in front of his bee friends. And Joey bursts her bubble by saying, uh, well, you know that the bee probably died after he stung you. So she tries again. Well, she calls Joey at the PBS telethon. Turns out he wasn't booked to co-host it. He was actually one of the guys just answering phones. So she calls him, and she tells him she's going to pledge $200. Now, she does not like PBS because she had this weird thing that went on with Sesame Street when she was a child. She doesn't like PBS, but she says, I'm, gonna, I'm going to pledge $200, and even though I don't like it, I know it makes other people, other children happy, and so I'm, I'm doing something good, but it doesn't make me happy. But it turns out that her pledge is the one that pushes PBS over their goal, and it makes it so that Joey gets on TV, and when she realizes her pledge did that for Joey, she's really happy to her own chagrin. <laughs> now, that obviously is not a very thoughtful evaluation of good deeds. I mean, there's plenty of problems with how they're thinking about it, but that's the subject. You know, are we good? Can we do a selfless good deed? And, and let's look at how Paul answers that question. The fact is he, he leans towards Joey's answer. There are no selfless good deeds, at least when it comes to life outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, there's no possibility to do something good. And what he does is, he's not the one coming up with verses uh, 10 through 18. These are all quotations from the Old Testament, or paraphrases from the Old Testament. And, And that's significant because, again, his argument is with the Jewish person. So what better way to demonstrate the truth of his argument than to use their Old Testament scriptures? This is what your word says, that you accept as God's word. So he begins in verse 10 with, none is righteous, no, not one. Now, this one could be a paraphrase of Psalm 14.1 because the next two verses are from that psalm, uh, or it could be from Ecclesiastes 7.10. Either way, what Paul's getting at, he is getting this from the Old Testament, either a combination of those two verses but he's saying that there's not a single person who is considered righteous by God. That's what your scriptures say. He goes on to summarize the content of, of Psalm 14.2, and he says, no one understands, no one seeks for God. In the Old Testament, understanding was a kind of synonymous way to get at wisdom. He's saying no one has the wisdom to do what God wants. And he's saying that they, they don't seek after God. They don't look to God for direction. They don't want to do what he says. And then he gives a more direct quote of Psalm 14.3. says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Everyone has turned in their own direction. They've chosen to, 
take their own path of life, to do, to live the way they want to live. And they've ruined their lives because they're not living the way their, their creator intended them to live. And then there's, again, this emphatic statement. There's not a single person who does what is good. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting thing about the context of Psalm 14. So when you go to Psalm 14, the first four verses are these, these universal claims about humanity. But then in verse 5, you know, claims that there aren't any righteous. In verse 5, Paul mentions the generation of the righteous. So, you know, many comment that Paul is kind of being selective here. And he's, he's really talking about two groups. There are two groups. There is the, the righteous and the wicked. There's the wicked fool, and there's this group described as the righteous that Paul's conveniently ignoring. And so maybe these accusations here in this chapter aren't saying that everybody's really wicked, but, but that there are wicked people. Well, this, this is not just a problem for Paul and his selectivity. This is a problem for David. David is the one who first said, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, that's everybody, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Before we talk to Paul, we need to talk to David. How are you talking out of both sides of your mouth? And the solution is the same for both of them. Neither David nor Paul would say that in the end, there will be none who are counted righteous by God. The issue is all about how do you how is that the case? How will there be in the end some who are declared righteous? There are some in the end, and Paul's argument is righteousness is only possible in communion with the one who is righteousness itself. Righteousness is not an inherent or is not inherent to humanity. So in both the Old and the New Testament, the, the answer here is the same. Righteousness, how one is righteous or made or declared righteous, is a matter of God's grace in rescuing us, in rescuing for himself a people for his own possession. So Paul's really just emphasizing the part of the Old Testament that speaks to the inherent situation that we're all in. Situation before God rescues us. And makes us righteous. So the Jewish person reading is there's a particular problem for them because there are these verses like Ecclesiastes 7.10 that make unqualified statements that say, surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. And further, these verses that Paul's quoting, they're not comments about Gentiles. They're comments about God's people. These are descriptions of God, God's people. And they're fully consistent with what God said from the start. In Deuteronomy 9, he said very clearly, I'm not blessing you because you're righteous. You're a stubborn people. You are the ones who provoked me to wrath in the wilderness. He says, you, you are all people with uncircumcised hearts. So the, the person who is this Jewish person that's trying to put themselves in the category of the righteous, Paul's saying, you're trying to do that the wrong way in a way that you cannot do it. You're trying to keep the law. Well, you haven't been successful, and that puts you in this category. You have not been perfect in your, in your keeping of God's law. The quotations here in verses 13 through 17, they kind of focus on different aspects, two different aspects. Verses 13 through 14 focus on sinful speech. 
And then verses 15 through 17 on sinful actions. So he says in verse 13, their throat is an open grave. It's like their speech is trying to destroy people. It's like they have their mouth open ready to, to bring about somebody's demise, bring them, suck them into an open grave. He says that their tongues, they use their tongues to deceive, not to help others, not for others' good. Their speech is so destructive, David says in Psalm 143, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their speech is as damaging, as dangerous as venom. And then the psalmist says even more directly in Psalm 10, 7, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. They curse and express bitterness towards others, not just in a few conversations. He's saying that their conversations are laced with this. It's full of curses and bitterness towards others. And then verse 15, Paul begins to talk about actions. In verses 15 to 17, and these come from Isaiah 59, 7 through 8, they say their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. Walking on a path, that was a typical way in the Old Testament to picture how you live. So Paul mentions feet here and paths in a way. He's talking about what they're pursuing in life. They're pursuing bloodshed, ruin, and misery. They do not live at peace with others. Notice the way that he talks here in these, from 13 to 17, he's focused on how speech and actions are negative. They impact people negatively, the people around them. Their speech is bent on destroying the people around them just like their way of life is. So they're not doing what is good. They're doing what is destructive. And then Paul points to the source of these the sinful speech and these actions in verse 18, he quotes Psalm 36.1, where David says of his enemies, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The, the fear of God really is just a summary in the Old Testament for how someone is supposed to live, the attitude that they're supposed to live with, this attention to God. So the failure to fear God, it's, it brings about the complete breakdown of human behavior. I like how Tom Schreiner explained this. He said, The purpose of life is to fear and reverence God so that he is esteemed as holy and majestic and mighty. Sin at its heart decenters God. It degods God. It rejects his rule over our lives. The ferocity and brutality of human sin as described in verses 13 through 17 might cause one to understand it primarily in sociological terms, you know, just dealing with the people around us. Thus, Paul reminds the reader that the root and basis of all sin is the failure to fear and reverence God. Sin is fundamentally theological in nature, but it has terrible social consequences. The barbarity of human beings to one another is ultimately explicable by a rejection of God and the failure to fear and honor Him. There's no way to do good when we're separated from the one who is goodness itself. He's the model. He's the standard. We can't do it when we are not in communion with him. So we only have hope to do what is good when we're first and foremost attentive to God, when we're paying attention to him, when we're attempting to carry out our role, to image him, to reflect his holiness and his goodness. But we've rejected God. 
That's what Paul's saying. Our first awareness is not what is God thinking and wanting. Our first awareness is our thoughts, our desires. So it's this depraved situation, a state of separation from God that produces this picture that Paul's been summarizing by these Old Testament quotations. Notice something else he's done here. He has specifically chosen poetic descriptions that include all these different body parts. Our throats, tongues, lips, mouth, feet, and eyes. He's describing total corruption. Not in the sense that we're as bad as possible, but every part of us is affected by sin. It's what theologians refer to as total depravity. He's describing this radical corruption within humanity as a whole. It's of course true that there are many non-Christians who wouldn't seem to fit what Paul's describing here. In fact, I think Paul himself recognized that many of the, the Jewish non-Christians that he would interact with, they, they'd take exception to being lumped in with this lot. But what Paul is saying is this is humanity. This is us. All of us. We're all a part of the group, both Jewish and non-Jewish people. This is how the Bible describes humanity. All those who are not connected to God. Connection that Paul's very clear about, only possible through Christ. Now, this is not how we view ourselves before Christ or otherwise. It's not how we face, it's not the face we'd give ourselves. But again, we don't see what other people see. And we don't see what God sees. Just like what Joey was essentially telling Phoebe, there is more to a good deed than simply the external act. We're all part of what God describes for the human race. And and even though some of us might be more successful at covering up our sinful desires and our sinful intellect, that doesn't mean that we're ultimately any different. Apart from communion with God This is us. We do not fear God. We are not righteous. We do not, in the end, do any selfless good deeds. We may do things that can be described as good. But God is very clear. Our motivation must come first through loving him. So we are radically corrupt. We are totally depraved. And as Blaise Pascal put it, nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine. Yet without this mystery, the the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. Just as Orwell didn't see herself as she truly was, we, until we see this truth about ourselves, we do not see ourselves the way we really are apart from God. Our lives bear the evidence of our circumstances, our slavery to sin, our total depravity, this radical corruption. And with that, Paul then turns to conclude the section. And in so doing, what he does is he reveals the truth about our future. So again, he's speaking to a Jewish person, and so he brings this discussion back to the Mosaic law. That's what the the Jewish person would assume, that even though they were the beneficiaries of God's gracious election, choosing them to be his people, 
They still needed to obey the law. They believed they still needed to obey the law so that God would recognize them as righteous in the end when they stood before him. But what Paul's explaining here is the idea that a, a Jewish person or really anybody else could be considered righteous by God in the end because of their obedience, that's not the purpose of the law. That was not what the law was doing. The law was given to God's old covenant people to teach them the truth about themselves. The law speaks to those, he says, under the jurisdiction of the law to assure, not to assure their acceptance, but he says, to, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable. Now that might seem odd. You know, he, I just said this is directed to those who are under the jurisdiction of the law. So you wouldn't think that would have to do with the whole world. But that is exactly the role that the Jewish people played in God's plans. They were revealing truth for the world to know. So, really, they're a microcosm. They're, they're a, a mini world. Their failure is a portrayal of humanity's failure. So, in as, in, in as much as God revealed his will, what he wanted for them through the law, he showed them what it looks like to bear his image, what it looks like to reflect his holy character. That revelation, what it was supposed to do is show this stubborn group of rebels that are no different than anybody else that they have no defense before him. When he acts as their judge, they would be speechless and the whole world would be speechless with them. The whole world would not only be accountable, they would be held accountable to God. That word translated held accountable to God it's, it's described by one dictionary as conveying the state of an accused person who cannot reply at the trial initiated against him because he has exhausted all possibilities of refuting the charge against him and averting the condemnation and its consequences which inescapably follow. They recognize that they lost their case. Even though the first century Jewish person who rejected Jesus didn't recognize the truth. The Mosaic law was actually teaching them that a verdict of righteous was not possible by their own efforts. Now, yes, Paul, even in chapter 2, and verse 13, he said that the doers of the law will be justified. But what he was doing there was stating the basis of God's judgment. Works, that's how Doug Moo puts it. God judges on the, the basis of what we actually do. So the person who did, if a person did obey the law completely, in the end they could be described and declared righteous by God. But what Paul's demonstrated is that nobody does that. That's why he says now the truth, the reality. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. I think it's somewhat unfortunate the ESV doesn't translate uh, the Greek word sarks here. It translates it as human being when it's normally translated as flesh. And what that does is highlight the nature of this, this effort. This is an effort done in our own strength apart from God's spirit. And what he's saying is that not a single human is going to succeed who attempts to be considered righteous by God by their own effort to obey his law. 
That's not a path to righteousness. That's not a path to be approved by God in the end. All that the law can do for you is give you an experiential knowledge of sin. That's what Paul says. That's all it can accomplish for those who are separated from God. The Jewish person could only hope to see through the law the truth about themselves, the truth about their circumstances. They're bound to slavery to sin. Truth about their lives, that they they live out a radical corruption. And the truth about their future, they are not going to be considered righteous by how they've lived. What we have to understand when we look at the Old Testament, we see what happened with Christ's coming, is that the Jewish person in Paul's day, who was trying to have a relationship with God without Christ, person who rejects Christ, even though we might think, well, they're just trying to do what the Old Testament was talking about. No. They actually have corrupted what the Old Testament was talking about. The way that the Old Testament would view themselves, the way the Old Testament would view obedience is different. Now, they, they may recognize God's grace. This is one of the failures that we, we sometimes have. The person in Paul's day, this Jewish person, may have recognized that they've experienced God's grace. I mean, they were chosen by God to be part of his people. They knew they didn't have any control over that, but they still believed that they were able to obey God's rules and that God would acknowledge them as righteous because of what they've done. That's how he'd accept them. That is not how things have ever worked in the Bible. If you ever thought, well, that was the Old Testament. No, it wasn't the Old Testament either. That is not how anything has ever worked in the Bible, even in the Old Testament. Paul's going to go on to show that. Obedience was never a means of acceptance. Obedience was a response to acceptance, always a response to acceptance. It was only ever truly accomplished by an individual who knew they were a sinner and was trusting in the forgiveness and acceptance that God had provided. So that person, that person could because of of acknowledging the gracious forgiveness they'd experienced and acknowledging the gracious acceptance that they did not deserve, that person could then love God and obey on that basis because God would enable them to do that. That's what God's after, a love that obeys, not obedience in order to be loved. I think Tim Keller puts it well. He says, if you know God's love or that God loves you in Christ... And that there is nothing you can do or need to do but accept his perfect righteousness, then you can feed the hungry, visit the sick, and clothe the naked, and all of it will be done as a gift to God. But if you think you're going to get or keep your salvation by doing these deeds, it's really yourself you are feeding, yourself yourself you are clothing, yourself you are visiting. It is who we are serving in our hearts that matters, not how we are serving with our hands. Without faith in Christ, good deeds are not truly done for God, but for ourselves, and thus are not truly good. There are some today who believe that they really can do good things. That in the end, those good things that they've done will be met with God's approval. You know, and I come across this all the time when I ask people this question. If you were to meet Jesus at the gates of heaven when you die, and he asked you, why should I let you in? You know, the number one answer that people give, automatically, it's a reflex. Even sometimes believers that get confused by it, 
It's this reflex of saying, well, I hope I did enough good things. It's just automatic. That is the wrong answer. But that is what people think. And so they think that justice in the end is going to be God giving them what they think they deserve because they think they've they've done a pretty good job. And then there are those who are quite antagonistic towards any idea of God. And what they assume is really like Orwell in uh, Till We Have Faces. They think they have a legitimate complaint against God. And that one day they'll, they'll meet God, if, if, he, if they do meet God, they'll be able to say, you didn't reveal yourself well enough, and basically I've been a good enough person. They'll still, they're still trusting in a justice in the end that they think they deserve. The fact is, we don't want justice in the end. That's not what we want. For ourselves, That's not what we should want for ourselves. Toward the end of the book, uh, Lewis's book, Orwell, she, she's given her complaint, and she's gotten her answer, but now it's her turn. The God of the mountain gets to come and face her and accuse her. And she's accompanied again by that old teacher, the fox, and she tells him that she can't hope for mercy at this point. She realizes that. But her teacher says something a bit different. He tells her, be sure that whatever else you get, you will not get justice. She asks, well, are the gods not just? And he says, oh no, child. What would become of us if they were? And what he means is, when, when God acts on our behalf in the end to bless us, it's not because we deserved it. It's not because of justice. It's because he's withholding his justice. It's because he's met out justice on another in our place. See, God was not just toward us in sending his son to rescue us from our sin. And you know, it's not fair right now that you are told about that. And you know, it's not fair that the Holy Spirit would cause you to pay attention to it. Right now, you are not receiving justice right now you're receiving grace you're experiencing grace to hear the truth about yourself truth about your circumstances truth about how you live the truth about what you will face one day and what i would urge you is to believe what god says about you because one day There will be only justice to face. And it will not be what you think. It will not be what you want. So face the truth about yourself and face the truth about Christ. First of all, you are not righteous. But when you trust in Christ and what he's done, he makes you righteous. Through him, through what he's done. That's what you should believe. And if you do believe that, don't lose sight of it. Recognize what you deserve. This is not a message for those simply who haven't believed. This is a message for those who have believed. To remember who we were before Christ. What we deserved. And not to shy away from it. But to let that stimulate our love for God because we recognize just how amazing His grace toward us was. That is what's going to enable you to obey by the power of the Spirit. Love, not accomplishment. 
So rest in the accomplishment of Christ. Love him. And in so doing, you can obey by the strength of his spirit. Out of love. Not to be loved. Join me in prayer. It is easy, Father, to hear a message like this and to think, maybe you're not good because you, you describe us as bad and we don't think that we're that bad. Or to think, well, we don't think we should be punished and you're going to punish us. If this is the truth, then how can we believe in your goodness? And yet, Father, I pray that you'd rec- help us to see a truth that we have no basis to evaluate goodness. There's no law of goodness anywhere out in the ether. You are good. The only basis there is for goodness is that you are good. That we would see that, that every one of us would recognize that. I pray for the person here who who really does think that this is simple and not a big deal. Or the person who is antagonistic and thinks God needs to do more. You need to do more. Pray that they would recognize the grace of hearing the truth about themselves. That by your spirit, they would pay attention to it. They would believe this amazing love that they would submit to a loving God. Realize that they themselves are are despots. They themselves are not doing what is good for themselves. They would repent trust in Christ. And Father, for us, help us to never, ever imagine that we were the ones who figured it out, that we were the ones who accomplished something on our own or even by your strength. Think that we accomplished something that other people aren't doing and we focus on the accomplishment. Help us to never do that. Help us to see that it is only grace. There's no synergism. There's no working with you to save ourselves in any way, shape, or form, that we were destitute, that we were slaves to our sin, that we were totally and radically corrupt when you rescued us by your son. And that we would see this amazing love. That It would be the basis for our hope from here to the end. We'd say even as we're going to sing, yet not I, but Christ in me. That we can have hope, that we can have confidence that one day we will stand before you. And if, if Jesus were to ask us that question, we would say, you should not let us in. But because of you and what you did for me, you said I can enter. Help us to rest in that every single day. And let that stimulate our hope and stimulate our obedience out of love for you. Thank you for your word, for your spirit. Amen.